Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible. Hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments or ask questions in our Facebook group. Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through scripture. I'm Ronnie Cosman. And I'm Will Kynes. And in this episode, we're looking at the hotly debated question of Job's Redeemer in Job chapter 19, which will involve us thinking a little bit about chapter 9 and 16 as well. And we're pleased to be joined today by Dr. Brennan Breed. Brennan Breed is Associate Professor of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary, and he is the author of Nomadic Text, A Theory of Biblical Reception History. And I got to say, this is a fascinating book. This is one of these books that um, I, I thought oh, you know, I should kind of get a feel for what's going on in this book, maybe read a little bit of it. And before I knew it, three days later, I had read anything else but this book, and I had a whole document full of notes on it. It's just fascinating. Once you get into it, the ideas that Brennan brings up will, will change the way that you think about the Bible and how we interpret it in valuable ways. And I think since I read that book, I'm not sure I've published anything that I haven't cited it in, in some way or another. So thank you so much for your work on that, Brennan. Well, thank you. Uh, that's far too kind. Um, you know, I'm uh, really grateful uh, for your work as well. Uh, you know, will your work on uh, wisdom literature and the question of wisdom and categories and so on. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, intellectual similarities between the kinds of uh, thinking that we're doing and uh, questioning a lot of the things that we've been told and taught, um, which opens up some new avenues for study and for thinking. Yeah. And, and particularly what I appreciate about what your book, which has influenced my own thinking about the whole wisdom literature question, is the value of attending to different interpretations throughout history and how that opens up our understanding of the text. Now, am I right in remembering that you actually didn't set out to write a book about the, the understanding of reception history? You actually started thinking about Job 19, 25 to 27 and how it's been received, and then it kind of evolved into the book that you wrote? Yeah, that's right. My plan was just to write a history of how people from the ancient Near Eastern context, you know, from ancient Israel, uh, all, the, all the way to the present day, how they understood Job 19 verses 25 to 27. I've always loved that text uh, ever since I, I first remember reading it, um, simply because uh, I'm a Christian and it seemed to speak in ways that resonated with my Christian faith. Um, and I read it way out of context. That is, I hadn't really read the whole book of Job. Someone pointed it out to me and said, hey, I just heard a sermon on this. And I read it and I said, that, that sounds really cool and it's beautiful. And it is, I think. Uh, so in any event, that, that I just got interested in it. Once I read the whole book of Job and thought about it, I thought, wow, this is way more complex than I ever imagined before I actually read the whole book. Um, and so then I wanted to read and think about this particular verse or these you know, set of verses and how they function throughout history. How did people understand them? And so that's when I started to kind of write this. I even started writing my dissertation and then I thought, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> how do you do this? How, how do you write a history of how people have understood? Like, I mean, do, do I tell it in order? Like, do I jump back and forth? But I mean, how do I organize? I just have all this stuff. I found paintings and I found poems and I found sermons and I found gravestones. I found historians ruminating on it. I found like, all kinds of people from all different walks of life, all across the earth, all throughout history, thinking about this text. And how do I tell that story? It's too big and there, it goes too many places at once and it's not linear. So I ended up realizing I need some categories. I need to like build some furniture. It's almost like you move into a house and you got all sorts of junk, you know, that you want to, like, you know, maybe cool stuff you want, you want to like put in your house, but you had no furniture, no places to put it. You have no shelves, no, you know, I kind of felt like I had all these, this cool stuff that I had found about this biblical text uh, that was important to me. And, and I, I, it expanded all, you know, seeing all this stuff expanded my understanding of it and it under, expanded my understanding of God, I think. So for me, that was just this cool. I wanted to put all this stuff up on the walls, but I, I, I didn't know, I, I didn't have any idea of how to put it together and how to show it. Um, so that's when I started thinking about that question. And then I took a class um, at Emory that just started thinking about kind of literature. What is literature? Big questions about literature and the philosophy of literature and I kind of took it because someone said I should, and I thought I'm not going to get into this. But then all of a sudden, they were asking these same questions. The kind of the people who think about literature deeply have thought about all these questions before, and it goes all the way back to like Plato and before. You know, like deep philosophy has has wrestled with these questions for a long time. So I said, okay, now I got to think about this. And I found some philosophers throughout history who have really been helpful and have thought deeply about these questions. And so that that got me 
kind of trying to, I, I thought I was going to smush this all into one chapter, but that became most of the book now is just trying to figure out what am I doing when I read what someone else has said about a biblical text? So that's kind of the, yeah. the, the question there. Yeah. And I, I had a similar kind of experience when I was looking at the question of genre, which there's a lot of overlap between the things that you're saying in your book and in the question of genre and biblical scholarship. So we had that overlap there in, in our interest in Job and in re- reception history Though we go farther back than that. Well, we were both at UVA together as undergrads. Yes, that's right. Uh, yes. where we also got involved in some hijinks that may have yes. involved gorilla suits and running yes. through first year dorms <laughs> and the quiet floors of the library. But yes. that's all a subject uh-huh. for a different podcast. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> and, and maybe yeah, on that other podcast, maybe also we can talk about the reason that you had a latrine on the roof of your house. I just wanted to point that out. I don't know if everyone knows this. For several years, there was an actual non-functioning latrine on the roof of your house. But I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah. 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 We can talk about that in another, another, another context. <laughs> what we're talking about today is this question that you've put so much thought into is how are we supposed to understand Job 19, 25 to 27. And to get us started on that question, first, I want to ask you, how do you see this passage here fitting into the book as a whole? You mentioned that originally when you encountered it, and I think a lot of people encounter it this way. You you encounter it outside of that context, just kind of on its own, uh, maybe in Handel's Messiah or something like that, right? How do you see it now that you're seeing it within the context of the book? Yeah. And I think just even before that, like, I mean, the fact that most people encounter biblical texts out of context, outside mm-hmm. of their literary context, outside of a, an ancient context, right? Uh, and it, as biblical scholars, we feel like our job is to shove them back into their original context, and then they give us their true meaning, right? Mm-hmm. So what did this text mean? Well, I got to figure out what was going on in, when someone wrote it and what was going on in their head. What did the author eat that morning for breakfast? What was their theological opinion? You know, I got to figure out what they meant. And then I'm, I'm going to get the true meaning of it, which is going to dominate all the other meanings that people have made throughout history. And from that's what I, that's what I thought when I, you know, and so when I went to seminary, I, I figured out what Job 19, 25, 27 meant in the context of the book, or at least what I thought, I thought I had like put the tiger back in the cage, mm-hmm. right? Rather than realizing tigers don't belong in cages. They don't occur in nature in cages, right? Uh, we write things down so that people can read them in other contexts. That's mm-hmm. why we write. We write so that maybe it's us. Maybe I'm writing a note to myself, but whatever I, why, why I write is so that it can leave whatever I've written can leave the context and be interpreted out of context, some other time, some other place, some other setting. And I just have to realize that's why we write. That's the nature of writing itself. It's a magical thing that can mean or create new meanings outside of a context. So in any event, so, but, but if we're trying to think about like the book as a whole, as the context for Job uh, 19, 25, 27, which isn't the only place we can think about uh, how it means, right. um, how it might mean, but anyway, if we could put it back in that, they, we're, you know, it occurs um, kind of at a pivotal point of the book. Um, that is Job's in the midst of his arguments with uh, his friends, right? There's the beginning of the book where everything bad happens to Job. His friends end up coming and kind of blaming him for it, right? You know, Job's a perfect guy, but his friends don't quite know that. Uh, at least according to the narrator, Job's perfect. Um, so the, his friends are kind of piling on uh, what they think is good advice, uh, good pastoral care. Uh, and in some ways it is. Uh, what, what they say isn't all wrong or all bad. Uh, it's just kind of out of it's out of context in a way. It's it's not taking Job seriously as a person. So he starts to respond and get upset with his friends, not because they're necessarily wrong about everything, like life, the universe, and everything. They're wrong about him. He says, I didn't do anything to deserve this. And you're wrong about God. You say God's just only looking out for what's good for me. But actually, a lot of bad things have happened in my life. So God's obviously letting some stuff <laughs> slip through, right? Um, so in any event, he starts to respond and he responds with these metaphors that have to do with like taste and his personal experience, right? So Job chapter six, one of his first real responses to his friends. Uh, if you want to um, take a look at Job chapter six, he starts responding to his friends and he, you know, his friend Eliphaz has talked to him in chapters four and five and Eliphaz basically says, Hey, maybe your kids deserved it. I mean, God only does things to people that they deserve. So, you know, your kids died. Ah, man. You know, you must've deserved it in a way. Maybe you should just ask God for like forgiveness or repent, you know, those are some good things, right? You've helped people with this advice before is what his friend says. So Job's response to that is, oh, that my, I'm reading from the NRSV here, but oh, that my vexation were weighed, my calamity were laid in the balances, but then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. He's like, my personal experience, if you took the time to weigh it and think about it, it would explode your imagination right now, right? You, you, you can't even measure this. And then he talks about food. He says, verse six of chapter six, can that 
which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Is there any flavor in the juice of mallows? My appetite refuses to touch them. So he's taking his friend's theological advice and pastoral care advice. And he's saying, this stuff's disgusting. Have you tried it? <laughs> like, you know, like, like, you know, cod liver oil or something, right? You think this is good for me? Uh, so you know, he said, this, this nasty, nasty stuff. And it's bad to me. It's a taste, right? So I can't tell you something tastes good. I can tell you, I think something tastes good, but you say my taste buds are different, right? Then Job begins to, to respond with a new metaphor, the courtroom. Mm. He says, he's talking about justice, like, and this is where some readers say, okay, so this, this is a thread that continues throughout the book that Job's friends are talking about repentance, you know, just, just per, say you're sorry, or maybe you deserved it, change your ways, be a better person. You know, a lot of this stuff we've heard uh, in our own day and age uh, for people who are suffering, but Job's responding now with this me- metaphor saying, maybe it's like a, in a courtroom, if someone says that they're wronged, like the police have to take their testimony. I mean, they have to take, you know, like their, their statement, right? Like you have to listen to me. You have to hear me out. If I, I want to sue God is what Job says in chapter nine. I want to take God to court. But then at the same moment that he says that he says, but you can't actually sue God, right? It's impossible. <laughs> so I guess we're just like, you know, so it's a Job from this point on in the book moves back and forth. And he's been doing this since chapter six as well, moves back and forth, kind of oscillating between these like bursts of like optimism that I'm going to sue the pants off God and I'm going to win because God did this for no reason. And he's right that God did it for no reason, right? You know, yeah. we know that from reading chapters one and two. Um, it's not no reason at all, but it's certainly not a good reason. You know, if I did this to my kids, and I took away everything from my kids and, and hurt them to try to see how they would respond. Would they still love me? I mean, my goodness, like that, you know. Well, God says in Job 2, to, Job says to the, uh, God says to the, the accuser in Job 2, you incited me against him for no reason, right? We seem to have right. an admission from God himself right there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For no reason or no purpose. You can read it both ways, right? And for no reason or for no purpose. And either of those are bad, right? Bad reasons to hurt someone. Yeah. So, uh, so then, but Job continues to move with this kind of argument. Like he's like playing with it, like an idea, right? Like I wish. And so at the very end of this chapter nine, when he comes to chapter, uh, verse uh, 33 or 32, let's say, um, God, Job's talking about God. So chapter nine of Job, verse 32, for God is not a mortal like I am that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. I want to sue God, but God is God. So that's like, it's not going to work, right? Kind of the mental math, you know, like uh, I I can't sue the creator of the entire universe and and expect to win, right? Who's going to be the judge, right? God's the judge. Ah, God's the judge and the accused. That never works out well for people who want to bring a a suit against a judge who actually is sitting in the chair at the moment. And then verse 33, there is no umpire, the Hebrew word, there's mokiach. Uh, uh, there's no arbitrator. There's no mediator, umpire. Those, all, those words all kind of work. There, there's no powerful person who can stand between me and God and keep God away from me, from hurting me, but also to like make a wise and prudent decision that takes into account all factors. No, God is the most powerful uh, entity in the universe. And so uh, I, I can't win against that, right? There's, 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 so he's kind of hoping against hope for this being to kind of like help him right uh but that's it and then he kind of ends this with like well but i know that's not true um so <laughs> job's friends come back at him again uh job responds again with uh, invective but also this really interesting bit that maybe we'll come back to later where he says you know there's is there hope for a tree if you cut it down and some people say no no the tree's dead but then some people say no actually i've seen lots of stumps you cut down a stump the roots are alive and it can grow up so there's this kind of question does job mean that 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 there's no hope if you want to fight against God, or does he mean that there there might be a hope? You I know, mean, kind of a shoot of hope sometimes um, uh, if you fight against God. So this is a chapter fourteen, verse seven. There's hope for a tree if it's cut down, it'll sprout again. And there's a question there in the Hebrew. Does he say there's no hope for a tree, or is there hope for a tree? Is, he, is this a rhetorical thing? But there's no hope for me. Um, but what he hopes, verse thirteen of chapter fourteen, Job says. Oh, he's calling out to God. I wish that you would hide me in Sheol, the land of the dead. Take me from the land of the living. Stick me in the land of the dead that you would conceal me until your wrath has passed. So God, you're angry at me. You want to hurt me. I wish you would like one half of you, the nice half would kind of like take me, take and hide, hide you from the, hide me from the bad part of you that wants to come hurt me. You know, it's like a parent, like telling the kid, Hey, go in that room. And I'm going to get real mad right now <laughs> so that I don't yell at you or something. It's very strange thing. But you can see this kind of back and forth, this tension inside Job, where he's kind of hoping against hope that God can be his savior and uh, 
admitting that God is for some reason at the moment, uh, his, his attacker, right? Uh, and this, this tension causes a lot of problems for readers of the book. They want to try to solve it one way or the other. Um, so then that's where we find ourselves in chapter 19. Job's friends come back and get mad at him again. Job responds, Job's friends get mad again. And then finally, Job uh, in chapter 19 starts by saying, uh, speaking in a way that sounds like a lament psalm. So one of these psalms, like Psalm 3, where someone says, hey, I'm almost dead, or Psalm 6, you know, I'm dying here, God. Uh, I'm, I'm, my, my throat is like, can't breathe anymore. I'm, I, have, I have no breath in my body. Uh, you know, my eyes can't see anymore. I'm being kind of crushed by something. You know, all these various symptoms of being um, destroyed. Uh, and this Job 19 sounds an awful lot like Psalm 88, uh, mm-hmm. The hardest and most difficult psalm to read um, in the Bible, in my opinion, uh, it's the the only lament psalm, the only one psalm where people crying out to God that has no positive ending. It just ends by saying, someone saying, God, you wanted to kill me for some reason. And here I go. And I slide <laughs> away. And that's it. So Job sounds, he, he borrows a lot of words from this psalm. Uh, it, it's like built on it. It's also parts of the book of Lamentations, especially the beginning, not the happy part, the part of Lamentations 3. Yep. It's all about death and destruction. Um, uh, and it sounds an awful lot like this chapter. So Job is saying, I'm dead. You're killing me. I'm, I'm gone. I'm, I'm, I'm being put away. And by God, right, you God, you're attacking me. And then he gets this really interesting pivot. And what he pivots to is the question. This is yeah. like the, the million dollar question of today, right? What does Job mean by this? So verse 23, Job says, Oh, that my words were written down or that they were inscribed in a book. Ha, ha, ha. It's like irony here from the author, right? You know, yes, they were inscribed in a book. You know, Job's, <laughs> like, Job's like, all my words are going to die. I'm like saying all this beautiful poetry and like deep thoughts about the world. And it's just going to vanish into air. And like, you know, the author writes that down. Um, but anyway, so uh, with an iron pen, with, uh, with, with lead, they were engraved on a rock forever. So Job says, I want my, either my, I want something I'm saying to be written down forever. Now, does that mean Job's anger? Does it mean Job's um, like fury at God, uh, Job's uh, accusations, Job's lawsuit, maybe? Or is it what comes next that Job wants written down? Is it a mm-hmm. statement of something that sounds maybe a little bit like hope? Mm-hmm. That's the question, right? Job doesn't yeah. tell us. So verses 25 to 27, then I'll just go ahead and read the NRSV translation for these just so we can hear it together. So this is the, the centerpiece for today, right? For I know, or that I know, I, I know that my Redeemer lives. Now, that word redeemer, that's a big one right there. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean? We'll get to that, I'm sure. Uh, for I know that my redeemer lives, that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Now, uh, very little of that is for sure. This is one of the yeah. most complicated bits of Hebrew poetry in the entire Bible. And you can read that a hundred different ways. So that's that's part of why this captivated my attention. If I want to look throughout history to see how people have interpreted a text differently uh, in different ways, that'll make it interesting, an interesting story, but also that'll teach me something about how people throughout history have read the Bible. I want to look for something that's like got all kinds of holes in it. So I can right. see what people do with it, right? Uh, how yeah. have people understood this? So that's that's where we kind of find ourselves in the book, the statement of Job, either saying, I've got this redeemer out there. Maybe that's God. Maybe that's like this umpire figure we've heard about uh, this, you know, what, what exactly? Or is it is it this word redeemer can also mean like kind of blood avenger? Like I want someone to go fight God for me mm-hmm. or I want a kinsperson who comes after me to remember me and write my words down. That might be it. That that word yeah. redeemer can mean all those, all that kind of stuff. And yeah. it can also be like a court of law, the person who's going to come and sue God on my behalf. All those are perfectly fine meanings of this word. So what does it mean? Uh, that's what I asked you guys. That's why, that's why, that's, that's why I hope you. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's why we brought you on. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Now, Brennan, in, um, in chapter, so earlier, he's very pessimistic, right? That there's no yeah. one, there's no umpire there to help him out. Yeah. But then in chapter 16 and verses 18 to 21, there's a kind of shift. Yeah. So we read in verse 18, O earth, do not cover my blood. Let my outcry find no resting place. Even now, in fact, my witness 
darkness is in heaven. And he that vouches for me is on high. My friend scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God that he would maintain the right of a mortal with God as one does for a neighbor. So who's this witness now in chapter 16? And why is Job now confident in someone's ability to vouch for him when he's been pretty pessimistic of, you know, there being an umpire able to do this earlier in chapter nine? Does he change his mind or what's going on? Great question. Yeah. And I think this is uh, like how you answer this question determines in some way how you understand the book of Job as uh, as a whole. Um, mm-hmm. For me, when I look at the text and how it works, I mean, I, I think uh, people really want to make Job say something that makes sense. And that, may, you know, I understand that. I understand that impulse. It's the Bible. It should say something, right? It should be clear. Uh, when people speak, they try to say something that makes sense. Um, but I think what we have in Job is someone who is at the edge of... Um, I mean, they, he is struggling for words, struggling mm-hmm. to put things into words. And Carol Newsom has done some great work on talking about this and trying to understand it. Um, you know, when your world is broken apart, uh, when you've undergone severe trauma, your world doesn't make sense anymore. And so the words that you use are not going to make sense to other people anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you say the old things you used to say, they don't make sense to you anymore once you've gone through something that is utterly life-changing in this way. So Job doesn't speak like his friends want him to speak clear to the point with using words that everyone knows from like the book of Psalms and stuff like that. Job speaks in parodies. He speaks in riddles. Uh, He's kind of pushing the boundaries of language to try to um, express what he feels that he couldn't even have imagined feeling before this all happened. Um, So in that way, when I, when I think about like that, uh, the, when I when I look at like say chapter nine, I mean it's it seems to me it's not terribly clear that Job says just this is not going to happen. Um, he keeps ping ponging back and forth between saying I want this, I want this, and then no, I, I it's never going to happen. But then he keeps coming back to it, and a lot of us have experienced this kind of thing where like we know something's not going to happen, but then we just kind of hope against hope's sake. And then we find ourselves kind of telling ourselves the truth again. So Job's got kind of, thing, I think, an internal dialogue happening externally here for us to see. So in chapter 16, when he says, oh, earth, don't cover my blood. And even now there's a witness in heaven. This is uh, chapter 16, verse 19. There's, there, there is a witness in heaven. Like, so they've got the courtroom analogy here, right? There's some witness that's going to, and that earth do not cover my blood in verse 18. Oh, earth, do not cover my blood. Let my outcry find no resting place. That's a, it seems to me, a reference to the blood of Abel. So the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, where Cain kills his brother Abel, and Abel's blood cries out to God, and God hears that cry. That's a word, sa'ak in Hebrew, it means to cry out because of oppression most of the time. And this is the same cry that the Israelites cry out in Egypt, and God hears. This is the same cry that in Exodus 22, God says, if any widows or orphans or wandering peoples who are oppressed cry out to me, I will surely heed their cries. That that cry is really important. So so here Job is saying, hey, remember, aren't you supposed to be that kind of God Hmm. that hears this kind of cry of of the blood of the innocent from the ground, which I'm innocent. I didn't do anything to deserve this. My my blood's crying out. And is that the witness, the blood itself, or is the cry the witness? That's what some interpreters mm-hmm. would say. Other interpreters say, no, Job's talking about kind of a, a heavenly being who he hopes like fights against God and, and, you know, a heavenly attorney or something. We've already got the district attorney in a way in chapters one to two, the Hasatan. Maybe it is Job praying. No, no. Yeah. But, <laughs> but there's a, another uh, possibility here, too, is that maybe this is God. Maybe, huh. maybe Job means that we, we talked about in chapter 14 where Job says, I hope that God would hide me when God's wrath goes over. So God knows that God's hiding Job, but God's wrath still has to kind of try to fight Job. So God is split and doing two different things at the same time. This might be two different things, right? Job's hoping that God can like split in two and have one side be the arbiter and one side be this rageful, vengeful kind of part. And then like they they, they duke it out and Job gets to back up, you know? So this might be this call for for God to be the arbiter of God's self. Uh, now, those are all possibilities uh, of the text. And, you know, I got my way of reading it from time to time, but um, I, I think there's a reason that the biblical author wrote in very ambiguous poetry. Uh, and part of it is that I don't think they're trying to nail things down for us really clearly. I think they're trying to get us to think. They're trying yeah. to get us to ponder and grow as a result um, so that we don't get stuck like Job's friends repeating the same old things all the time. Let's get into 1925 to 27 yeah. to try and to dig into it in some more depth here. Uh, now, you have an epigraph uh, on your chapter in Nomadic Text where you start your 
exposition of these verses. Um, and it's from a Job scholar named Norman Habel. And he says, the suggestions for Job 19.26 are endless. So clearly we're not going to be able to cover them all yeah. right now. Yeah. Uh, but you've already kind of hinted at this, that there are a number of different ways that this passage could be understood. Could you walk us through what you think are some of the main ways that it could be understood? And, and why do you think there are so many? Why is it this passage that opens up into all of these different forked paths, as you would put it? Yeah, yeah. So that th- th- this is um, a difficult text. Uh, it is a complicated text because in the Hebrew itself, it seems uh, a lot of biblical scholars, when they read a very, very difficult bit of poetry, especially where words function in ways that don't seem to make a lot of sense mm. how, uh, as, a, as compared to how they usually function, biblical scholars usually assume that the text is what's called corrupted. Um, mm. That doesn't mean that it's morally bad or something. Uh, that's a word they use to mean that some scribe somewhere along the line got sloppy or was drunk or left something out or just like, you know, wanted to f- finish up work for the day or was getting lazy. And for some reason wrote something down wrong um, that they confused letters or they just kind of like their eyes skipped a little bit and generally you know, cut out a couple words. Um or maybe they just didn't understand what they were reading and they just copied it down wrong, something like that. There's some sort of corruption somewhere along the line. So in order to fix it, then to get the real true meaning, biblical scholars will put other words in there or switch the words around or add letters that might've fallen out, et cetera. And then they get it to say something that makes sense. You know, the, the book of Job might not make sense perfectly because it's especially Job's words, because they're reflecting the experience of someone who's undergone a trauma we can't imagine, or at least I can't imagine. Um, so all to say that like, I, I, it's also poetry. Uh, the thing that poets do is that they use words in ways that aren't typical. That's, that's what defines poetry. It's atypical use of language, right? That's heavy on metaphor. And I mean, if we've ever read a lot of poetry, we see that poets use words in ways that people don't all the time. So that, that's a typical thing. So in any event, I, I try to just read what we have. But we don't just have this uh, ancient Hebrew version. We also have lots of translations. Um, we have the old Greek version. So uh, Jews in Alexandria, Egypt, <clears throat> about, the, the, about the year 250 BC, who ended up translating this Hebrew into Greek so we can see what they thought about it. We've got the Syriac translation, which is Jews uh, living in a city called Edessa in what's today Syria, uh, who were translating the Bible into their local Aramaic dialect, uh, which was then used by many Christians throughout history, even to the common day, even to the, even to the current day. Uh, we, we can look at uh, Jewish understandings of the text uh, that were translated into Aramaic. Uh, that would be the Targums, the, the, the translations that tried to kind of update them for, for Aramaic speaking communities later on. So all to say, we got all these early translations too, uh, that can kind of help us get a, and all of them are very different. Uh, a lot of times these translations are all pretty much the same, but uh, this one's all over the map. I mean, all these translations are struggling with the text. And that tells me as a reader that it wasn't like some scribe messed up somewhere along the line. The author was trying to get people to struggle. The Mm -hmm. point of this text in some way is for us to struggle with something. Uh, And if you have to put it into words, you're going to have to choose something. You have to, you have to kind of, uh, you have to end up making some choices about this text. But instead of saying there's one right meaning and all the other ones are bad, instead we can ask what kinds of choices do people have to make when we look at this text? And we can look at the history of interpretation of it, of this text. And we can see that there's basically several different possible outcomes from, from reading this. And so this is my work is to kind of categorize um, all the readings I could find into three different kind of bins, we might say. Uh, and the first bin I would call a justice, uh, a call for justice. And this is what a lot of biblical interpreters look at. They say, look at the, the courtroom language. Right uh, throughout the book that we've mentioned, that Job says, "I want to want to sue God," and he actually uses the the word for sue like in ancient, uh, you know, in ancient Hebrew. I want to take God to court. I want to uh, God's the the judge. You know, all this stuff, all this language about the courtroom resonates throughout the book. Uh, so if you think about it in that context, then this word when when Job says, "For I know my redeemer lives," the word redeemer can really mean have a courtroom meaning. Uh, someone who comes to redeem you in court when you're sued, who uh, a person who kind of a, an important person wants to come help you on that. It could be that. Uh, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. That's a really, I mean, like, what does what, what does that mean? Uh, that, that word that means last is actually being used in a strange way. It's upon the dust he will rise up. So someone says, well, the dust of the courtroom, right? Because they had court the courtroom in the in the city gates. So the dust of the courtroom. So the, the Avengers, you know, this kind of Avenger defender is going to rise up in court, and then after my skin. And then that next word is either has thus been destroyed or it's, it, it could be hacked off that word. Like after my skin has been hacked off, like cut off or that mm-hmm. same exact word can mean 
it's like a synonym, or I mean, uh, what a homonym, the two words that mean kind of sound similar, but mean different things. Uh, so it, it could also be, uh, it's been surrounded. So after my skin has surrounded me thus, like my skin's coming back or is my skin falling off? You know, that's, it's, uh, it's ambiguous. Um, uh, and then uh, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. So there's some sort of seeing or, or understanding God. So the people who think about this is in terms of justice, they say, okay, uh, Job, Job's avenger finally shows up or attorney finally shows up and takes God to court. And Job's going to see God face to face in the courtroom, which is what God often, uh, Job often says about God. If you look at chapter 23 uh, of, of, of Job, verse three, Job's talking about God again. And Job says, oh, that I knew where I might find God, that I might come even to God's dwelling. I would lay my case before God and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn what God would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would God contend with me in the greatness of power? No, but God would actually listen to me. There, an upright person could reason with him, and I should be acquitted further by my judge. But then the next verse, he goes, but but I can't find God. God's not anywhere to be found, so I can't do that. Right? So again, <laughs> ping-ponging back and forth. But so he yeah. does envision this courtroom scene where God actually finally reconciles with Job, or admits wrongdoing. So that, that's one way of reading this. But another very different way of reading this is to say chapter 19, from the very beginning, from verse 1 all the way to verse uh, 24, talks about, it sounds like a lament psalm. That is like Psalm 22, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? And it's often accusing God of wrongdoing. A lot of these lament psalms, they say, God, you shouldn't hurt me like this or let me be hurt like this. Uh, Sometimes it kind of jars with people. Uh, It it grates against uh, some Christians who say, don't talk to God like that, right? But in the lament psalms, again and again and again, we see this kind of accusations to God that are pretty blunt. Um, And that they're also this language of God's hurting me, God's trying to fight me, God's killing me. Uh, and it's kind of calling out to God saying, stop this, become the kind of God that you said you would be. You promised uh, that you would help me and so on. That's what sounds like Job is saying here. So my body is falling apart and you are hurting me, God. And then for, I know that my redeemer lives. This is the end of what would then sound like a lament Psalm. And at the end of every lament Psalm, except for Psalm 88, every single time, except for Psalm 88, you get a recovery. The person predicts in some way, or sometimes narrates and then God helped me, or then God will help me. And I will sing praises in the temple to thank God. It's kind of like moving towards what we would call a Thanksgiving Psalm, where you show up and say, hey, God, you fixed the problem for me. Um, it's kind of a mystery <clears throat> while the lament Psalms are so angry at God. And at the end pivot towards uh, thinking about hope and moving towards hope. Um, so if you read it in that context, if you read it like, like that, well, this is lament Psalm. So the end should kind of move towards hope and hope that God will save you against God. This is what all the lament Psalms say. God, you're attacking me. I really hope you show up. And be a different God and fix it. And so that, it's not inconsistent for Job to say that here, even though a lot of the people who argue that this has to be about a courtroom and God, Job suing God, well, they said, God, Job would never do that. Well, every, every psalmist does. So, yeah. so, you know, like, well, why not? Right. Job said it before. So that's one way of thinking. about it. And I call that survival because it's not always about resurrection, right? Whether or not this is after like did Job die and he's talking about his skin being hacked off, but is he dead? You know, is he dead in this scene? It doesn't, necessarily have to be like that. That's how lots of Christians have understood it throughout history, but it has something to do with survival, uh, that Job is going to survive this. And then there's a third way, which is actually one of the most popular ways that anyone's ever read it throughout history, but people have often forgotten about it. Uh, it's it, it, like it's, it's become less common and biblical scholars don't even, many of them don't even know that this exists anymore. And that's uh, what I would call presence. Um, it's about God's presence, not necessarily God's um, salvation in a way. Uh, it's not necessarily about, uh, you know, that God is going to save Job from the pits of hell or uh, the, from death itself or something like that. Um, instead, it's really just, I want to see you. I want to be with you. Uh, I want I want to encounter you. I, I want to look at you and, and just be in your presence uh, after you've been trying to torment me like this. And it could be because I, I just want to know. Like, I mean, Job says in Job 23, as we just read, I, I just want to know. I, I want to know why you did this to me, right? Uh, but it also could be because Job thinks that in God's presence, there will God will, God will look at Job and be like, whoa, why am I doing this? Or, oh, Job, I love you. I, I should stop doing this to you. Does that make sense? Um, in the book of Jeremiah, this happens too, where God is like attacking the people because of all of the sins of the people and God's going to destroy Jerusalem. But then Jeremiah says, and then God sees what's happened and then God starts crying and then God saves us. So this is a, a, again, a theme you see repeated throughout the Bible where God does break things and knock things down because of injustice or whatever. But then God also then has pity and then rebuilds. So that could be what we're looking at here. And that, that phrase in 1926 of Job 
and after my skin has been hacked off or something from my flesh, I will see God. That verb for see is chaza in Hebrew. It's not ra'a. Ra'a means to like see kind of with your eyes something very clearly. And it's repeated also in uh, verse 27, this, this uh, Hebrew verb chaza, which can mean to see something with your eyes, but most often has some kind of, I don't know, uh, spiritual mystical dimension about it. Like seeing God's salvation. This is used in the Psalms for that, or seeing God's presence in the temple um, or uh, experiencing God's grace. This is a verb that's used for that most often. So that's why uh, many readers throughout history, uh, many early Jews uh, and, and then Christians following after them, uh, they, they understood this to be kind of a, a, a statement about the, God's presence with them. So there's that Syriac translation I talked about that took, that was translated sometime around the year 200, 300 uh, AD in the city of Edessa by Jews, and then was taken over by Christians as their, um, uh, their, uh, their, their kind of based text of choice. Kind of like I use the NRSV. They use the Syriac Peshitta. And Eastern Christians, there are many Christians today alive who see this text not primarily as about like, uh, Easter and death, the death and resurrection of Jesus, which it's often understood like the handles Messiah. You know, it's understood in the Christian tradition that way. Um, they don't ever sing this at Easter uh, and they don't use it at funerals. You know, Western Christians use this at funerals all the time. You know, for I know my Redeemer lives at the last he will stand upon the earth. It's about the end of time, right? And about, it's about me ra- raising up and about Jesus' resurrection and so on. But instead, uh, many of these Christians uh, in the East have understood this as a Christmas song. They sing it as a Christmas carol. Um, because it's about God meeting, right? God, it's about seeing God in the flesh. Ah, mm-hmm. incarnation. This is yeah. also the way that most Jews throughout history have understood this text. From my flesh, I see God. This is understood to be about circumcision. So if you move to Genesis chapter uh, 15, right? There's a covenant that God makes uh, with Abram. And then there's the birth of Ishmael after that. And then you get a second covenant. In chapter 17, so the rabbis, the early rabbis are thinking, what the heck is happening here? Why do you have two covenants? And then in chapter 18, the Lord appeared in chapter 18, verse one, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. God appears in the form of a person or three people. Maybe the text kind of ping pongs back and forth between which one of that it is. But the, the rabbi said, ah, what was the difference between chapter 16, where God doesn't appear after the covenant? or appears in chapter 15 as like the strange kind of like a bucket going back and forth. I mean, God appears in a very weird way in chapter 15 In chapter 16, God appears in a weird way. Chapter 17, there's the circumcision with the covenant. And then in 18, God appears. Ah, it's because the circumcision itself, the, the radical devotion to God that was required for this act uh, is then going to open up the possibility of encountering God. So from my flesh, I see God. And this has also been understood that, from the human body, you can understand God, who God is. This is a, a, a found in the Zohar, some Jewish mysticism. But this is also why in the Middle Ages, Christians thought it was an abomination to dissect human beings uh, who were dead, right? And try to understand how the human body worked, um, that it was de- kind of desecrating their bodies and so on. So people knew nothing about anatomy in Western Europe in the Middle Ages because they had no clue what was going on inside the bag of the human body, right? It was kind of, <laughs> we're just meat bags, right? But you can't cut us open. Um, uh, but, but Jews at the time, uh, the rabbis had, had said, hey, look, from the human body, we can understand God. We need to understand the human body. So let's actually find some people who want to be scientists and, you know, like physicians and dissect dead human bodies, people who willingly donate their bodies for the knowledge of what a human body, so we can save life. And from this knowledge, we can know who God is better. And they would, step- they would refer to Job 19 when they were yes, talking about Yes, they this? referred oh, to Job 19, 26 uh, in, in their arguments, because there were arguments about this, but we've got, got these medieval Jewish arguments where they say, no, it's from our human body that we can find, we can see God. And it's from that, that like the Renaissance comes, this understanding of the human body, right? Michelangelo, how does he know what, where the muscles are? Well, because it's Jewish people who have been understanding the human body for the last century, um, precisely because of Job nineteen twenty six. So without Job say, nineteen, like, without Job nineteen twenty six, we wouldn't have had the Renaissance. That's well, the that's the making. one text that they keep coming back to uh, to to uh, justify the fact that they are, uh, according to most people of the day, desecrating human bodies. Mm. Of course, they say we're not desecrating human bodies. This is a sacred task. It's from my flesh that I see God. And they even had this other argument that went along with it. That was that uh, how did Abraham know the Torah? He, the Torah wasn't written yet. Moses wasn't born. How does Abraham know if Abraham's good, he's got to know the Torah. How does Abraham know the Torah? 
because he knows it from his body because the Torah is written into the human body itself. If you are wise and reflect, you can see the, that you're not supposed to kill a person. You're not supposed to hurt. You can stare into a human being's eyes. You're supposed to love them. If you don't get that, you don't get the Torah. And that is all of the Torah. And so that was a, a way of, of, of talking about this that also kind of uh, uh, justified uh, thinking of the human body as not uh, a disgusting cesspool that we were going to be liberated from someday, but instead as a site of God's creativity and God's presence itself. So again, uh, Christians in the East see this as kind of like a Christmas story about the incarnation. Jews throughout history have often seen this as a validation for the human body itself um, and a validation of its worth uh, and, and of its study. Uh, so this is to say, like, I think all three of these are justifiable based on the context, because guess what? Job says here, I want to see God. And in the end of the book, what happens? Job sees God, yeah. right? That, that like he, he calls the end of the book, right? Right here. So it's, so you can think of this in terms of justice. God wants to sue, Job wants to sue God and make things right in the courtroom. You can think of this in terms of presence. Job is hoping uh, that, that God's going to be with him. Uh, and that in some way that this will uh, not, not necessarily, not even necessarily lead to his salvation, but just lead to some sort of resolution or, or a, a, a Rapproach around the relationship, you know, rebuilding a relationship with God. Um, and then the third uh, uh, kind of bin, you can say, is, is salvation. Um, you know, he wants to be healed or he wants to survive, live beyond this experience. Um, and so Christians understand it's a resurrection. Jews have understood that sense of survival as uh, the survival of the Jewish people. There's a great historian, uh, Leopold Zunz in the 19th century, who started what's kind of known as like uh, the history of Judaism. Um, it was like a big deal at the time because uh, in Germany in the 1800s, it wasn't great uh, uh, PR, right, to say I want to found a school dedicated to studying Jews in the history of Judaism, right? Um, there was a lot of anti-Semitism at the time, as there continues to be. Um, but so Leopold Zunz founds this school uh, of studying Jewish history. And one of the big things he wants to do is document Jewish gravestones and, 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 and funeral places and just write about them and learn about the lives of these people who were killed often, you know, in Germany, right? These pogroms, right? That have happened since, uh, you know, right about the year 1000 uh, AD, you start to get these huge waves of persecution. And so he goes back and tries to understand these gravestones of these faithful Jews who died because of their faith. Uh, and he starts his study by saying, Job 1925, mm -hmm. I'm the avenger. I'm the redeemer. I'm the one who's going back into history and I'm going to tell their stories. And they were, they're going to live again because of that. Not, not in flesh and blood, but they're going to live, their, their lives will live again. And I'm retelling the history because it's going, to, it's going to retell who they are. They're going to have a completely different way of being remembered now because of me. And that's my, that was his goal. And I find that to be kind of beautiful, right? When we dig up these old stories, right? These old interpretations, they could be dusty and we could say, well, I don't, I don't really care what, you know, ancient uh, Iraqis thought about the Bible, right? Who cares? Well, maybe it can be a word of life to you, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, but also understanding them can broaden our ex existence. And like, you know, you, you can be in a way like helping to save the memories and livelihoods of, of people who have died a long time ago. So there's kind of some beautiful stuff that I think that can happen um, in studying the Bible this way. Now, of those three options, those three possibilities, uh, do you have any leanings as to, you know, in its context, does one of those strike you as uh, a better choice or is it just too ambiguous that all three possibilities work? I mean, what do you think? That's a great question. And I, you know, I, I think I'd answer this and the way I'd answer almost always when someone says, um, like, you know, I have students, I'll often do this in class where I'll point out different ways you can understand text. And I'll have students say, well, which one's right? Or, you know, which one's true? <laughs> which one's real, right? We have this understanding that there's only one, right? It's like, it's like there's a big fight and there can only be one, right? There can only be one winner. And it's a fight to the death, right? That's yeah. how we understand uh, reading and interpretation. And, um, uh, and instead, I, I like to think of it instead as uh, we're working with like a toolkit. This is a toolkit. The, the biblical text isn't always telling me one thing and only one thing. It's giving me tools by which I can understand myself and the world and God better. And I think it's built in such a way that it allows itself to be used in different ways in different places. So I don't have to get mad at people uh, a thousand years ago in a different part of the world for reading it differently or say that they were stupid and wrong. I can say that made sense in their context. So for me, I look at this text and I think um, all three of those are great readings. and there are different times in my life, different times of the day that I might reach for one of those as opposed to the other. I think they are all resources that have been given to us 
uh, it, it, for our own edification uh, and for our relationship right. with God. So, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a I'm a Christian through and through. So, I, I, I do yeah. think God's trying to speak to us through the text, and the Spirit is trying to work through the text. And so, for me, I think okay, uh, if God's going to speak to all these people all across time and history and cultural difference and linguistic difference, and God's going to try to speak to them, it's got to be in different ways. It's got to be the text can't mean the same thing in every single culture because people are so different in different times and places. So, it's got to be able. There's got to be this wiggle room. For yeah. it to mean something that makes sense in, uh, you know, medieval Iraq uh, and medieval Baghdad. And it's got to be able to mean something a little bit different, you know, in Decatur, Georgia uh, in 2021. Um, there, but what, what's beautiful is that I can, I can, I can see and, and in a way is study the connections. Like, how is it that I'm connected to them, even though I'm different uh, mm-hmm. uh, in, in my act of reading this text? So, uh, you know, the one I reach to more than others is survival because I'm kind of a hopeless optimist. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I just, you know, I, I think, you know, God's grace and love is going to win in the end. Um, but I also, there are times when uh when I see radical injustice or when I see, when I, when I witness, uh, you know, something that's happened that I can't explain if I think about God's grace, I can, I can only get angry. I mean, there are those times. Um, I mean, are there times, are there times when you encounter a reading of this, of these verses, uh, where it's like, okay, that's probably a little way out in left field or like, like there are limits and boundaries. So here's the, here's the, here's the question. Biblical scholars are so worried about the limits that, that is, that is what (laughs) keeps us up at night. Right. Because this is the literally the next question you always get. You never get I have never once gotten the response. Wow. I want to explore this. I always get the question. Holy crap. <laughs> then anything, anything you can say anything. Right. Yeah. And we're trained to think that way. Yes. Um, but yes, I think it's uh, it, it is. I think there's an infinite number of uh, great interpretations of Job 19. I think there's also an infinite number of terrible interpretations. Okay. Um, you know, infinity can work in two directions, right? If I start here and keep going, that's, you know, I, I, I won't go behind me. Right. So the, the, there, there's, there's the things that aren't true, even if there's infinite number of true answers. So, uh, but, but I think the, the, if I, for me, reading the text matters, but I don't have to tell everyone in the world. Like a, a poet might not need to like account for all the words in Job very carefully, or an, uh, a painter, right? I mean, taking mm-hmm. artistic license with the Bible is a fine thing to do. But if I'm a biblical interpreter working in, and if I'm thinking for me in that I'm, in a way, I'm thinking about keep, keeping accountable to the text. I'm trying when I talk to people about the biblical text, I'm trying not. Uh, to say whatever I wanted to say when I showed up to it. I'm trying to let the text speak in a way that's going to surprise me, push against me, uh, lead me somewhere I didn't know I was going to go before I showed up. So in a way, like I, I think what I'm, what, what I think is most helpful for me uh, is for me to suspend a bit of my, of myself and try to figure out what I, what I think this means. And for me, that's keeping myself accountable to the text. I have to, I have to think, okay, if my interpretation doesn't account for this word, or if I have to like kind of skip that word to get what I want out of this text, then that's probably not a good reading. So for me, it's like, um, let's say I give you like a big uh, pile of Legos, right? And I'm like, build a castle out of this. Well, there's a million, there's infinite ways for you to build a good looking castle out of that Lego pile, right? You can do it. You can build a little one, a big one and whatever. These different colors, you can, you can do it. There's probably a limitless way for you to do that. But also if you build a dinosaur, out of it, I'm like, well, that's not a castle, right? So there are these limits, I think, to like what's a good or bad reading. Um, but I, I think, uh, I think there is, there's never one. There's never just one way to do this. So let's think about where we go from here in the book. So we, we've, you've helped mm-hmm. us, you've walked us up to Job 19, uh, and here in Job 19, we have this confident expression: "I know that my Redeemer lives." But the book doesn't end here. Right. And Job dives right back into his despair again. So what happens? What becomes of Job's Redeemer after these verses? Does the Redeemer idea, does that come back again in the book? And perhaps, is it God? Does God turn out to be the Redeemer who Job will see? You've kind of alluded at, at this already. Mm-hmm. Is that how you would understand what happens here? Do you mean, at, the, end do you mean at the end of the book? Yeah, when that, God appears and then mm-hmm. Job sees him. I mean, you've got 42, 5, mm-hmm. right? I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes yeah. see you. Does that right. point us to God as the Redeemer? So I think, uh, you know, the 
the, that, that could, and that's one way of, of seeing it. The people who argue or have understood throughout history that, that, that Job 19, 25 through 27 is primarily about God's presence, um, that I have seen you by the seeing, you know, like, I, like that, that, and, and, uh, for a contemporary example of this, like Frederick Buechner, uh, I really like his writing. Um, he has this little book where he talks about, um, different biblical characters and so on. It's a kind of an ABCs of, of, of biblical characters. I think it's called peculiar treasures is he's got a bit on Job there. And that's how he ends it. That's how he understands the whole story is not in terms of like just salvation, like God saved Job. Um, but, but in terms of presence, well, what Job really needed was not the answer to all things, but what Job really needed was just God, God to be there. Um, and so that, that's one way of understanding this is that it's like, that's the, that's the through line of the text. Um, it is interesting at the end that Job, Job gets everything back. It does say that, that kind of God restored George Job's fortunes, um, which is kind of this broad thing that people generally say, uh, like in, in the old Testament, you know, they restore their, their fortunes were restored. But if you look at particularly how it happens in chapter, chapter 42, when you come back to the prose tale at the very end of the story, um, Job is never said to be healed of his, mm-hmm. of anything having to do with his body. Um, whether he's healed or not, we don't know, but, uh, it's curiously left unremarked upon. Um, remember, Job has sores all over his body and everything. Um, but also, how does Job's for, how do Job's fortunes get restored? Well, his friends and family come back around, which apparently have been avoiding him. Not just his friends who've been talking to him, but all these people who um, he loves apparently, uh, you know, come back and they all give him money. Uh, they yeah. everyone gives him a little coin, and in the end, then Job kind of has his life back. Uh, and you know, in a way, you can you can look at this and say, you know, the. Uh, it's God who has done this. It's also like the community who has decided to rally around and support someone instead of interrogate them and mm-hmm. accuse them. And that maybe that's God's activity that, that that creates that generates that possibility, right? I mean, but uh, but it's not that God shows up and saves Job. That, that it's it's an interesting thing at the end of the book, right? It's not like um, God takes away Job's sin and he would have gone to hell otherwise or something, right? I mean, it just says. Job was in despair, and then Job's friends and family come back around. Yeah, and, and so I mean, and so the, I think it's more complex than just saying like you know it, like he was condemned and now he's saved or something. Um, but I do think that God is the the engine of this, you know, the generator of this, and you know the the divine speeches are amazing, but also so strange and so hard to understand, right? Um, but I do think that bit about chaos in chapter thirty-eight to me that's the that's like you know if you ask about the like how I read the book, I think there's a million ways to read the book. When I under, try to understand the whole the book as a whole, what does this book mean? Why is why does it exist? What is it trying to say? For me and for me alone, um, I look to chapter 38 verses 8 through 11, and I see this as a kind of a key to the whole book. God, God says, I created the entire universe. And verse 8 implied, I shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb. So God is a mother who has given birth to the universe, including the oceans. And then I made clouds, its garment, and thick darkness, its swaddling band, and prescribed bounds for it, set bars and doors, and said, thus far you shall come and no farther, and here your proud waves shall be stopped. So the sea or the ocean in the ancient world is often a symbol of chaos, especially in creation stories, right? The the, the chaos in the universe. Another way of thinking about what Job's been saying is why is there this uncertainty and chaos in the world, right? There's supposed to be order. I did good. I should get good as a result of it, right? Um, I lived a perfect life and I've gotten chaos and bloodshed instead. Why? What, you know, there's no order to the universe. And God here says, I created this wonderful, well-built kind of an architectural masterpiece of the cosmos. And right in the middle of it, I made chaos itself. The, the, The point of this really is to say, um, life itself, like the, and God goes on to talk about the world in the rest of the speeches, right? Not, not people, but just like here, you check out ostriches and check out eagles and stuff, right? And check out the chaos monsters of the world, behemoth and Leviathan, which are just in the center of the earth. I made the chaos monsters. That's awesome. Um, also God says, I made the chaos monsters, just like I made you Job, chapter 40, verse 15, just like I made you, I made the chaos monsters. So chaos is like this huge part of this book and of this section here in the divine speeches. And so God's saying, I made that and, and I'm protecting it. I'm, I'm also setting boundaries for it. So the world will never be uh, enshrouded in chaos. It will never fall apart because of chaos, but it's just there. Yeah. Uh, and for, for me, uh, this is so crucial because life itself requires death. Life requires growth. Like mm-hmm. if, if everything stays the same and there's pure order, 
then nothing is changing and nothing is growing. And that means that nothing is living. Life requires change and that change requires openness. There need to be spaces for things to develop and grow and for things to be unexpected. And that also requires that there be things that can fall, anything can fall apart at any time, precisely because it's, a, it's alive. Like we are a living yeah. ecosystem. We're living people. And our life is predicated upon death. Like it's predicated upon, like we, we, we can't have one. It's like two sides of the same coin. Uh, the possibility of creating something new means that everything that exists has the possibility of falling apart. And those are the same. So for me, when you know, Job's calling out for uh, this, this uh, uh, redeemer, the savior, right? Um, you know, it, when in, you know, I know that my redeemer lives last, will stand upon the earth. If we reach to that and say, well, that means that God's going to save, like fix all these problems and all the bad things in my life. God's, I just got to call out to the right name. And then God's going to come and save me and, and, and fix everything. Um, I think the book of Job is more complex than that. And it's trying to say that uh, the world, it's not just that God's trying to hurt you. It's that the world itself has, because of the way God made it, has these possibilities for chaos. Uh, the, the hurricane Ida, like God didn't like do that because God was mad. That's the way the weather systems work. The same exact weather systems that create hurricanes also bring the rain that keep us alive and, you know, move air around the earth. Like we all depend upon these things that also can create chaos. Um, and if without the chaos, we'd all be dead. So all to say like this, you know, to me, like the kind of uh, fundamental complexity of the universe and of life itself is at the heart of this thing. Um, and to me, I, I hope that helps us to kind of, it doesn't say shut up, Job, you're, you're suffering. That's a bad thing. And, and just, just take it because that's the way the world works. But I think in a way it's to say um, that, uh, you know, the friends saying you deserve this and Job saying God deserves this. That's, none of those are the full picture of, of, of our lives and of the life of the universe itself. Uh, Brennan, you mentioned that when you place a text in a new context, right, you can get these new meanings, right? New possibilities yeah. of interpretations. When we place the book of Job, for Christians especially, when you place the book of Job and you attach to the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, you attach the New Testament, right? Yeah. What kinds of new possibilities do we get in terms of the meaning of the Redeemer? So, and are there like how do early church or ancient Christian interpreters um, interpret the figure? And are, are they pointing to specific New Testament passages that they think are kind of referring to the book of Job? Yeah, uh, there, there are some uh, New Testament passages that tend to kind of intersect and uh, overlay some of these. Um, so yeah, if you look at the book of Romans, right, Paul seems to be in some ways touching upon aspects of salvation or types of redemption that we might say resonate with these parts of the book of Job. Um, I think overall, though, the New Testament doesn't um, seem to grapple uh, all that directly with the book of Job. It's not like they're citing Job a lot, um, uh, you know. Paul seems to cite Job a couple of times. Uh, the book of James mentions Job, but just as like a paragon of virtue and uh, of patience, which doesn't seem to actually reflect the book of Job as we have it in, in our current form. If we if we we can think creatively, I think we can think constructively, and as certain Christians have throughout history, thought constructively about taking seriously the grief of the book of Job and comparing it to what many Christians have as kind of their triumphalism, right? Like the cross has dominated everything. Jesus died and then rose again. And like no problems anymore, right? Everything's great. Uh, and if you have any problems, it's because of you, right? Like suck it up or like just pretend otherwise, or, you know, um, but if we think, I, I do think in the new Testament, it's like talk about Paul, right? In Romans, we can think together about, uh, you know, ways that the cross for Paul doesn't just do away with all problems inside ourselves and in the world itself, you know, immediately. Um, we can, you know, that to me, that that's a way of thinking about this chaos that exists, that continues to exist in the book of Job in chapter 38, that will never go away until the cosmos itself is radically changed uh, and transformed, um, you know, which Paul does talk, you know. So I, I do think if you think of the New Testament and say um, these, you know, the, the already not yet dimensions of it, yeah. Um, and the not yet part, why not yet? Uh, what, what does that mean? Not yet, uh, uh, that we are still living in the midst of a chaotic world and we have that chaos inside of us. I do love that bit in chapter 40, verse 15 of Job, where God shifts from talking about the natural world, uh, like ostriches and eagles, and then starts talking about these chaos monsters, behemoth and the Leviathan. And yeah. this is the one time that God really refers directly to Job in, in these speeches where God says, look at behemoth, this ma massive chaos monster, which I made just as I made you. 
So in other words, people are the chaos monsters. Um, <laughs> we are chaos monsters, uh, according to Paul and so on. It might resonate really with like what Paul says in Romans 7, uh, where he says, you know, I, I want to do this stuff, but I can't really. Yeah, that's interesting. But I mean, sticking with Romans, so yeah. you mentioned that in this idea of the Redeemer in Job, that Job is struggling with whether on the one hand, God seems angry at him, but on the other hand, he doesn't know who else he can appeal to, but God. And I'm wondering, even if there's not explicit reference to Job, if we could see this as one of the capacities or potentialities of Job 19 and Job 16 and even Job 9, yeah. You know, a passage like Romans 5, 8 to 11, yeah. but God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us much more surely than now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him, through Christ, from the wrath of God? That seems to reflect a similar kind of... Yeah, I want God to hide me and the wrath's going to go over. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, sorry, then he, he continues to describe how through the son, we have been reconciled or saved by his life. And then mm-hmm. later in Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes. Who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed intercedes for us? I mean, that sounds like that witness in Job yeah. 16, in the Redeemer right. in Job 19. So do you see right. these kinds of passages picking up? Maybe they're not, they don't have Job in mind, but right. when Christians go back and read Job mm-hmm. with Romans in mind, yeah. uh, is that a legitimate way of exploring the capacities of these texts in Job? Yeah, I think it's legitimate for sure. And, and uh, you know, I, I think, you know, the one, one thing to always explore is residences and like, you know, places where it doesn't quite fit exactly. But yes, of course. I mean, the, the idea of Jesus being this intercessor, uh, you know, between God and human, what Jesus is God, so Jesus has the power of God. So Jesus can be the intercessor, but there's also this kind of division there in a way, right? So Jesus is something different from God, the father, right? You know, like, so there, like, this is, this is what befuddles early theologians, right? And it takes hundreds of years to come up with a clear formulation for him. We still don't, I mean, it's still a mystery, right? But, um, but th- that, that kind of distinction within the person of God and in the spirit, of course, working there too, right? Uh, allows for this kind of conversation between the Godhead, right? You know, so that the son can intercede with the spirit on behalf of people to the father who is kind of understood as having some kind of judging power, even though that's kind of like Christ is the judge too, you know, you know so that we, we fall into these uh, 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 theological abysses in, in some way, but that I think that's, it, it's, it's right to say that uh, Job is hoping for and wishing for a mediator, which people in the ancient world, like ancient Near East, you know, ancient Israel probably would have understood, heard that and thought, He's, he's probably trying to talk about like a client God or lower class God, right? He's talking, he's talking about like a, a powerful, but younger God that's going to fight with the older God. And like, you know, cause people in the ancient world were generally polytheists, right? They had lots of gods out there um, and the gods could fight with each other and things like that. So that's probably how that would have been understood by some people. Um, but then Job does keep coming back to this idea that it's somehow God, God fighting with God. So Christians, I mean, whether or not they're reading Job this way or thinking about it, I, I, had, I wasn't able to find any very specific way of Christians reading this and thinking about um, tensions within the Godhead by means of Job 19 or 16. I, I tried. Uh, I thought it, was, it might be interesting, but, um, but they tend to be reading it in, in, in terms of uh, justice, in terms of Jesus's resurrection or our resurrection or in survival, uh, our resurrection or Jesus's resurrection or justice in terms of like uh, eternal justice or something like that. So, uh, but there, but you know, the, what you can say today is that if we're looking and trying to think of a, a kind of a constructive, creative form of biblical theology, I would go there. Yeah. And I'd say that there'd be a lot of people would say, well, you're reading into the text. You're, you're, you're eisegeting, right? You're putting stuff in there that no ancient Israelite would have thought. And I, this is again, where I go back to the point that like the ancient Israelites wrote Job, not to like make a clear statement. If they would have, they would have written like one line and just been like, Hey, it's all about, it's all about chaos or something, whatever, you know, but they didn't do that. They wrote this really complex uh, work of art that we have to wrestle, wrestle with and struggle with. Um, and, you know, in, in the end, uh, I'm, I, I hope that uh, they wrote this thing down so that people in other places and other times, other contexts could continue to wrestle with it and try to find meaning in it. So all to say, like, I think we're not like doing disservice to ancient Israelites by trying to interpret their texts in ways that they didn't understand with later events in mind. I think what we're doing is participating with them, doing the same thing that they did with their texts that they were handed down to them. 
Well, Brennan, drawing on the uh, tradition of the blurb and biblical scholarship and another discipline ah, yes. where you pick up yes. the back of a book and see, oh, yeah. so look at all these people who have... I see that uh, Brennan's got a blurb from one of our other guests, Scott Jones, oh, on the back of Nomadic Text. Right. So drawing on that right. tradition, um, we, yeah. is there something you'd like to blurb for us? It could be a book, it could be uh, a new hobby you've picked up or a movie you've watched. Yes. Or Do you have a blurb for us? Can I, can I do two quick ones? Yes. Uh, one is uh, the book After Whiteness by Willie James Jennings, uh, which is a fantastic book about theological education and about the academy more broadly. Uh, it was recommended to me by uh, Caitlin Hubler, who's a PhD student at Emory, that the audible version was really good. And it is. It's awesome. Very mm -hmm. well narrated. So you can like you know listen to it as you walk around. But it's a great way uh, for anyone who's an educator or a student uh, or a pastor, anyone who's thinking about how do we teach people about God and how do we not do that uh, in ways that reaffirm um, uh, pretty evil uh, uh, systems of uh, racial superiority, the idea of white whiteness, right? Um, that it kind of it pervades much of what we do as scholars um, uh, throughout the academy, not just in the theological academy. So I think that's really well done. Another one is um, I recommend uh, Ellis Mandolins. Um, I like playing mandolin uh, and... Uh, <laughs> And uh, it's, it's handmade by Tom Ellis, uh, who lives in Austin, Texas. And uh, they're, they're beautiful uh, works of art, but also they sound good, too. Brenda, we're so grateful for sharing your time and your expertise with us. And, and mandolin us, skills. And mandolin skills. And helping us <laughs> walk through this, this difficult but really important question for how we understand Job. And as you've demonstrated, how we understand so many other things as well, which was one of the things I love about engaging with you about the biblical text is it always opens up into all of these other panoramas and, and vistas into the text uh, that you demonstrate for us. And, you know, one of the things that you showed is that there's lots of ways in which one could interpret something that you encounter. And we hope that you, listener, will interpret this episode you've just listened to as, you know, one of the best things you've ever heard on Job's yeah, right. We hope that's how you'll, you'll understand it. We think that's a legitimate potentiality of this text. Maybe even Job is calling the listener to be our redeemer. Oh, perhaps. Yeah. I don't know. You know, and step in, intercede for us yes. with the algorithms on Apple podcasts. That's Who right. knows? But one way you could help us out <laughs> and, and be our redeemer. Or something, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you can go give us a review. You can also share this with others if you think that they would also enjoy both uh, Brennan's mandolin skills mm -hmm. and his interpretation mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. Um, so thank you, Brennan, and thank you for listening today. The Two Testaments is produced with the support of Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to Joe Zellner, Jody McFarlane, and the team in the Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants, Carson Knopf, Jake Maddox, Harrison Pike, and Gracie Plum, for their help with production, editing, and promotion.